think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. If you know me, if you've been a listener to this podcast for a while, you know that in addition to being a birder, I'm also a sports fan specifically a basketball fan. And such, this week, the return of the NCAA tournament is very exciting, sort of in that things slowly seeming more normal every week as the vaccine drive continues. That's it's great. But this is not a sports podcast. This is a birding podcast. You are not necessarily interested in my hot sports takes, except perhaps for the one about how it is a travesty that the only two schools with bird mascots ever to win an NCAA tournament are Kansas, which has as its mascot a Jayhawk, a mythical bird wearing shoes. It certainly raises the question of how does a bird even wear shoes? Why do those shoes look like people's shoes when bird feet do not look like people feet? These are the questions that keep us up at night. And Louisville, the Cardinals, which has a horrific monster of a mascot, a cardinal with teeth. Makes my skin crawl just to think about it. Awful. So I am I'm always interested in looking at teams in the NCAA tournament with bird mascots and the ornithological accuracy of those mascots is a great concern to me. And I will note that this is the men's tournament. Uh, at the time I record this, the women's field has not yet been chosen. Um, so without going into a mascot-by-mascot mascot breakdown of the ornithological accuracy of every school with a bird mascot in the tournament, if you want that, you can go to my Twitter feed. Spoiler alert, there are a lot of eagles. I will point out that the best bird mascot in college sports, with a caveat that I know of, has made the field this year. Checking in from Omaha, Nebraska, the Creighton Blue Jays. This logo is very good. So good that I will even forgive the fact that they spell Blue Jay as one word. But they get the head right, the black and white pattern. The costume version of the mascot even has gray legs. It's a nice touch. Well done. It's good attention to detail. Nice one, Creighton. Nice one, Billy Blue Jay. If you're looking for that underdog to win it all, and you want that pick to be accurate from a bird perspective, because why not? Consider this a service for you. On the show this week, I'm introducing a new series, a new panel. March is nothing if not experimentation month here at the American Birding Podcast. I don't have a name for it yet. It is about bird identification. Uh, I might have a name by the time this releases. You may see it in the title. Uh, I don't know. We're still throwing it around. Identification Nation? ID Nation? Those do anything for you? Bird School's already shot down. In any case, I am joined by a couple of crack bird ID experts. Tom Johnson of Field Guides and Outbirding, and Marky Mutchler, artist, birder, ornithology graduate student. We're going to chat about bird identification, and yes, there is sort of a visual element that that is missing. We are a podcast, but I do think we do a good job describing things. You can, you can tell us whether you think so or not. The focus is on early spring birding, so water thrushes, blackbirds, migrating ducks, all that after this week's Rare Birds. Rare Birds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of March 2021, and I am warning you, we're going to get weird. So presented in increasing order of weirdness. We start in New York, where an apparent tundra bean goose was discovered in Saratoga County. This would be a first for the state and comes not long after the long-staying Pennsylvania bird disappeared. Seems plausible that this could be the same individual slowly working its way northward. Notably, a pink-footed goose was also nearby, so good good goose diversity in Saratoga County, though they are not as unlikely in the Northeast as they were even 10 years ago. Let's get a little bit weirder. Out to Hawaii, where a potential ABA area first record Inca turn was found at South Point on the Big Island of Hawaii, famously the southernmost point in the United States, which is an appropriate place to find this South American seabird. Inca Turn is a uniquely colored turn that breeds on the coast of Peru and Chile, largely restricted to the Humboldt Current, but it does have a pattern of vagrancy as far north as Guatemala. Interestingly, one was seen last month in Costa Rica. Ship assistance is a possibility, but that would not be caused to exclude a bird from the ABA checklist. And frankly, if a swallow-tailed gull can get to California and Washington, there's no reason an Inca Turn couldn't get to Hawaii. And now to the realm of the very weird. The ABA rare bird fan community was shocked last week by the photo of an adult Stellar's sea eagle evidently taken at a lake in Texas, Calido Creek Reservoir near Victoria on the middle Texas coast. The location of the bird was confirmed later when birders found the snag it was photographed sitting on, so evidently the bird was there. I am not one to completely discount the possibility of a stellar sea eagle naturally vagrating to Texas. There was a white wagtail there last fall, and citrine wagtail famously turned up first time in the ABA area in Mississippi. So East Asian birds can get to far-flung places, and Texas had some very odd, very cold weather last month that could plausibly push a strong flying bird like a sea eagle into the unknown. There was an adult stellar sea eagle photographed in Denali, Alaska last fall. Did it go south? Do we have a reverse great black pox situation here? I don't know. It's impossible to tell. I'm just laying out the the case. Stellar sea eagle is not commonly kept by falconers or private collections, though it is sometimes. Who knows? Weird bird, weird mystery that might never be solved. Interesting, nonetheless, which is why I present it here. Those are the highlights of the week, but we round up the entire rarity landscape every Friday morning with ABA's Rare Bird Alert at aba.org slash RBA, or you can join our Rare Bird Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Spring is here and birders across North America, including new pandemic birders for whom this might be their very first spring migration as a birder, are looking forward to birds' returns. We're going to try something a little different for the podcast, an identification roundtable. We're going to chat about some early spring ID issues, just some fun stuff that we're seeing right now in this sort of mid-late March. Uh, And with me to do that are a couple of returning podcast guests that you may have heard before. First, he was on a few months ago on This Month in Birding. He is a guide for field guides, one of the hosts of the Outbirding web series. Welcome back, Tom Johnson. Hello, Tom. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. And from the ABA Leica Subadult Weed Ears, the former ABA Young Birder of the Year, artist, and current ornithology graduate student at Louisiana State University. Go Tigers. Marky Mutchler. Hello, Marky. Hi, Nate. 
so excited to be here. To the both of you, you're both in different parts of the world. Marky, you're down in Louisiana. Tom, you're in um, Cape May, New Jersey. Both places that are sort of known as migration hotspots. How has your birding been lately? I know it's a little early, though maybe not so much for you, Marky. What signs of spring are you seeing where you are? We originally had a little bit of a late start with the cold snap. Um, but now the things are back on a roll. Uh, we've already got purple martins that came back end of January. Swallowtail kites are back. Um, I just saw my first one the other day. And of course, ruby-throated hummingbirds are making a big push in the last few days. Um, I've already had my first one for campus. And friends around the area are seeing several others as well. A few perulas have already popped up. I know we got our first one on campus about a week ago. Um, and so everything's just kind of slowly moving. We're still getting our first warblers and everything. Um, but spring is here. Yeah, very exciting. How about you, Tom? Things are really starting to hum along here in the spring, too. It's been, you know, kind of a slow February, as is often the case here in New Jersey. It's kind of the tail end of the wintering birds and spring migration hasn't really kicked in. But in the last few days, there's been a big push of uh, northbound waterfowl moving. Mm-hmm. And we're also hearing lots of birds starting to to tune up with their songs. So I've been hearing uh, fox sparrows singing and rusty blackbirds. And in the evenings, there are lots and lots of American woodcock out displaying right now. So it's a great time to be out birding. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, I, I know I've, I've always thought that, you know, people... They, they want spring to get here so fast. And largely when people say spring, what they're talking about is that sort of, you know, last push of neotropic migrants and the, you know, all the exciting birding that comes along with that. But this kind of slow start, the kind of long run up to spring is great too. And there's some certain, some ID issues that people can think about at this time. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, Marky, you talked about warblers. Have you had any water thrushes lately? So we have a lot of, um, overwintering northern water thrush that hang oh out. And so surprisingly, we actually don't get that many Louisiana water thrush. They're, they almost skip us, basically. Huh. Uh, they're early migrants, so they just basically jump right over me. Um, so I rarely see them in the spring here. And so they're already here. There's several already in Louisiana, but it's more north of me already. And so I just see northern water thrushes usually right now. Huh, that's really interesting because here in North Carolina, where I live, um, you know, Louisiana water thrush, one of the earliest spring migrants, we usually have them on territory by the last week in February and really tuning up about this time. Um, when do you expect to see them up in Cape May, Tom? Um, I expect them, it'll still be a few weeks until we get our first Louisiana water thrush. But wow. um, when they show up, they uh, they kind of go from being absent to being fully present overnight. So you can yeah. have none and none <laughs> and none and then boom, there's one back on territory and he's just singing away nonstop. It's it's one of my favorite warblers to to see back here in the spring. Yeah. So, Marky, you're you're picking through all these northern water thrushes that you have where you are. When you're looking for that lat Louisiana, which is sort of an unusual bird, sort of backwards the way it is for (laughs) for a lot of us, um, what what are you looking for? What really stands out to you when you're trying to find that Louisiana? A lot of the water thrushes that I get, I actually don't even see at first. Um, I mostly go by listening for their different calls. And so northern water thrush and Louisiana water thrush um, have pretty distinct different uh, call types. I think of northern water thrush as kind of this more of a like a pink sound or like a pink mm-hmm. sound, whereas Louisiana water thrush are kind of dry and more like a chit or um, 
a tick almost. They're both very loud, but they're both very vocal. And so the other thing that makes it pretty easy is a lot of northern water thrushes are wintering along the coast and um, in really scrubby kind of uh, standstill, standing water areas, mm-hmm. whereas Louisiana water thrushes, if they're here, they're already on territory. They just show up um, along the streams and those creeks in the deciduous forests. And so again, habitat and those calls is really the first thing um, that I go through for those species. You're going by what you expect, right? You're going by, because you're, you're in a certain habitat and you're thinking either northern or Louisiana, you're not necessarily thinking, am I going to get a water thrush that I'm not going to know? Especially here in Louisiana, that's often the case. Um, occasionally when we have like fallout, um, often really early on, Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you'll have a Louisiana water thrush mixed in, but usually it's a lot of northern water thrushes during actual migration. Yeah, I think what Marky mentioned about the call notes is really, really helpful. And um, I like the the mnemonic device there, the pink and chit calls. Um, when I hear a Louisiana water thrush chip, I usually hear kind of a flat chip call. And northern water thrush is is kind of a ringing, rising chip. And if you... Uh, if you happen to make a, an audio recording of a water thrush that's giving its chip call, you can actually see that in the sound spectrogram. You can see the, the rising quality of the northern water thrush and the flat quality of the Louisiana water thrush. I think when I think about visual ID of water thrushes, um, I've gotten to know these birds a bit over the years, and occasionally I'll run into a water thrush that, that kind of stumps me. But I like to to sort of start off by getting an overall impression of what's going on with the bird. Um, Northern water thrush usually looks a little bit more compact and small mm-hmm. build. And Louisiana water thrush often strikes me as being like really large build and large headed as well. And if there's like a sort of a magical field mark with the water thrushes, I really like to, to look at two points on the bird that you can, you can usually see at almost any time. And that's the the eyebrow, the pale eyebrow, mm-hmm. and the kind of the rear lower flanks of the bird. And on northern water thrush, these are often kind of tinged yellowish, both the eyebrow and the whole pale part of the underparts. On Louisiana water thrush, there's almost always a pretty striking contrast between the white eyebrow and then this kind of pinkish salmon color that's isolated on the on the lower rear flank. So that's like mm-hmm. the sort of the the jacket pockets that area of the the water thrush. And I think if you you think of water th- uh, northern water thrush as having, you know, low or no contrast between the eyebrow and the flank and Louisiana water thrush as having high contrast between the white eyebrow and the the buffy flank, I think that can really help you solve I don't know, 90 plus percent of your, your water thrush ID problems. That's really nice. That's a, sort of an underrated field mark. Do you think that there's a field mark that people get pointed to that is a bit overrated as a, as a water thrush, a way to differentiate the water thrushes? Because I think, you know, a lot of people, at least on the What's This Bird group, they will look at the chin. And I've never found the chin to be, one, you don't often see it that well. And two, um, I've seen Louisiana water thrushes with sort of a st- little bit of streaky chin, and I think it can really send people the wrong direction. Yeah, I think the the generalization there is that northern water thrush has a dark spotted throat. Or, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it has a has dark spots on its white throat. 
and Louisiana has kind of a clean white throat. But if you uh, if you look closely, there there are kind of minor exceptions to that rule. The, <laughs> right. the general trend holds up, but um, I I tend to to try to think about field marks that you can see more easily without mm-hmm. looking super closely. Like uh, that throat spotting field mark is really kind of a micro field mark, and I I try to think of things that are more readily visible from farther away. Mm, yeah. One of those things that might be able to be like the third or fourth or fifth thing that you look at rather than the, rather than the first thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, when I do see Louisiana water thrushes, there is that odd ball one that does have that streaking in the throat um, or at least a little bit of a suggestion of it. Um, another thing that I often think can always, can sometimes be a little bit tricky is pointing out the eyebrow widths. A lot of times people are like, mm-hmm. okay, Louisiana water thrush has a thick back end of the eyebrow. Um, and I've seen plenty of Louisiana water thrushes where that eyebrow is very uniform in terms of thickness. Or I've seen northern water thrushes that sometimes have a little bit of a flare towards the back. And so sometimes I see people focusing on that only. Um, and that can be a cause of confusion as well. Yeah, especially when the bird is moving around and changing position, maybe craning its neck a little bit. Those are the sort of field marks that can that can change based on how the bird is presenting itself to you and can be a little bit confusing. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I also just wanted to point out that within northern water thrush, even though there's there's usually low contrast within the bird, within an individual bird, between different pale parts of the bird, there are northern water thrushes that are fairly white both in the mm-hmm. eyebrow and in the pale parts of the underparts. I usually think of the the standard northern water thrush as being kind of pale buttery yellow in the pale parts and the underparts. But um, there are really whitish birds that can can cause some confusion as well. So that's those are sort of the exceptions that really make it helpful to look for those contrasts between the eyebrow and the flanks. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Certainly one of the main signs of spring where I am in North Carolina are sort of the return of blackbird flocks. By that, I mean um, red wings, rusties, common grackles, and cowbirds, just kind of generally taken as blackbirds, flying over my neighborhood more often. Do you guys see this as well? Or is maybe this is, <laughs> maybe it's just, maybe it's just me, but I, there's a lot of blackbirds moving right now of a lot of different varieties and uh, they can be very difficult as well. I see a lot of blackbirds this time of the year. They're they're moving here in Cape May, but we're actually pretty lucky to have have good numbers of blackbirds around all winter. Mm-hmm. Um, not just the the really common eastern blackbirds like redwing and and common grackle and brown headed cowbird, but also um, some kind of scattered flocks of rusty blackbirds, which are kind of this medium to long distance migrant from the boreal forest, and they tend to stay kind of isolated from the other blackbirds, but it's, it's one of my favorites here in the, uh, in the winter months. Yeah. This is an interesting time of year for rusty blackbirds in particular, because they're, they're wearing, you know, they have that, that what we think of as rust is the feather tips that they have all winter. And then as spring comes along, those feather tips, they kind of preen them off and they wear them into that beautiful glossy plumage. So there's a lot of sort of patchwork rusties around right now. And I think that confuses people a lot. Are you seeing any of those down where you are? Uh, Marky, that's a uh, that's a it's sort of a classic southern swampy wintering bird. Yeah, so I'd say maybe two or three weeks ago we had our huge push where there were brusty blackbirds in little small groups, but every once in a while you come across um, several dozen of them, and they're just kind of hanging out. Um, but we also get a lot of brewers blackbirds, 
Oh, yeah. So those are more Western um, in the States, but we often get pretty large flocks. Uh, a few weeks back, I had maybe over 100,000 different blackbirds flying around me um, out in southwestern Louisiana. So we deal with a lot of these birds. But a lot of them, I'd say, especially the western blackbirds right now, um, have already pushed north. Uh, there's still quite a few in Louisiana, but we are kind of seeing that uh, kind of like ebb and flow um, of them leaving now. So when you are in the middle of a large blackbird flock like, flock like that, how do you approach identifying those birds? Or do you just toss, throw up your hands and just put it on your eBird checklist as blackbird spa? <laughs> um, it depends on sometimes how good that view is or if I can hear them. It's another one of those things where if you know the different calls, it can be very easy to pick them out. You can tell the grackles apart. Mm-hmm. You can tell the blackbirds apart, um, especially when we deal with boat-tailed versus gray-tailed grackle. Relying on those calls can be very helpful. So that's, that's our, my main focus. Um, sometimes rusty blackbirds and brewer's blackbirds will kind of go off of a group of a large uh, group of blackbirds. So you might find like, oh, here's a patch of 20, 30 brewer's blackbirds next to a flock of 500 red wings, but they're kind of by themselves. Um, sometimes they do mix. And so having to like scan through and look for those differences um, is kind of my next move for those big groups of birds. Of course, when they're flying and they're a mile away, it can be a lot harder. <laughs> Blackbird spa, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think when I'm watching big flocks of blackbirds flying around, um, my my first reaction is to try to get a hold of, of what the main species in the flock mm-hmm. is. Sometimes mm-hmm. around here, that's common grackle. Sometimes it's brown-headed cowbird. And usually the the things that combine to, to help form those impressions are sort of the, the bird's general shapes. So often the, the length of the tail projecting yeah. beyond the wings, mm-hmm. the density of the birds in the flock. So if you see a big flock of cowbirds and they're flying together, they often pack yes. a lot more tightly yeah. than mm-hmm. common grackle, for example. And those sorts of, of differences really help uh, tease apart you know, different species in a single flock. In New Jersey, where rusty blackbird is relatively uncommon, they tend to segregate away from the other blackbirds in most cases. Every once in a while, you'll see a rusty mixed in with, with red wings or, or cowbirds. But more, more often than not, it's, it's 10 or 15 birds that are kind of off by themselves mm-hmm. in the wet woods. It's not quite the, not quite the same thing as being uh, you know, in the, the central United States and the Great Plains where you might have hundreds or even thousands of of rusties moving together in the springtime. Yeah, that's the way it is here in North Carolina yeah. as well. Um, you know, the rusties do like to, to separate themselves. The shape of the birds when they're flying is such a great tool. You know, very early on in my birding career, someone described common grackles to me as ducks flying backwards. And um, because they've got that big keel-shaped tail that look, kind of looks like a duck head. And um, yeah, that's stuck with me so much. And, you know, cowbirds are such little compact, finchy type blackbirds compared to kind of more lankier rusties and, and red wings. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's right. And you'll you'll even notice differences in the the speed and the interval between flaps. Mm. So like cowbirds, mm-hmm. for example, have really, really fast intervals, really explosive little flaps, and they they flap really quickly and repeatedly. And grackles, if you look at them side by side with cowbirds, flap much more slowly. Yeah, absolutely. And um 
that that definitely helps you kind of tease apart these groups, these little flocks that you'll see from time to time. But you know, here in North Carolina, and certainly in the eastern part of the uh, of the state, we do get those massive flocks, like Marky's talking about as well, and they're they're moving right now, and uh, it's a little bit easier uh, here in the Piedmont where I am, where it's mostly just you know five to a dozen. It seems to be the the normal normal move. Yeah, I mean, back in Missouri, there will be just like a group of. 300 rusty blackbirds right next to several thousand red wings and they'll be happily intermixed. Mm -hmm. So it can be quite a challenge. And there's quite a few like small nuances with rusty and red wing blackbirds. Uh, But after watching them for a while, you can kind of get an idea of, okay, red wing blackbirds kind of have this short wide wing with a little bit of a shorter tail. um, But sometimes when they flare it out is a very flat on the tip. Whereas like rusty blackbirds have kind of, they have a little bit of longer wings. I sometimes feel like they have more of a hunched neck look, mm-hmm. um, but they also have uh, longer tails that are a little bit clubbed at the tip, but I mean, both of them kind of have, when folded, that kind of clubbed tip. So it's it's like small differences, but um, if you watch them enough, it can be pretty easy once you get the hang of it to tell them apart. I think that's a great point with the uh, the shape of Rusty Blackbird being really distinctive. That's something that I really look forward to seeing every October here in, in fall migration, kind of the other side of the coin when the Rusties are, are just arriving in New Jersey for the winter and seeing that, that really sort of hunched neck and, and the, the skinny long bill. I, I sort of think mm-hmm. of them as being like really athletic looking blackbirds mm-hmm. and almost, almost kind of dart-like. Like if you grabbed one around the midsection and tossed it at a dartboard, <laughs> it, would really, it would really stick in there pretty yeah. far. I definitely see that. <laughs> it's a good description. Do they make noises? And to, I mean, I'm thinking of not necessarily like the the individual calls, but you know, my sense is that blackbird flocks, especially red winged blackbird flocks, are constantly calling. They are loud flocks when they're moving. Whereas things like cowbirds, um, they don't make a lot of noise when they're flying. They tend to be very silent when they move by. Yeah, I think that's right. There are, there are uh, exceptions to that. Yeah. Sometimes you'll run into a, a noisier flock of cowbirds, but I think you're right. There there sometimes will be flocks of two or three hundred brown-headed cowbirds that'll zoom by and they'll just they'll be completely silent. You'll just see this mass of of birds going by. I often end up noticing things like yellow-headed blackbird mm-hmm. or or rusty or brewer's blackbird when they uh, when you hear an isolated call from one of them. Um, when you've been sort of growing accustomed to hearing other things like red winged or, uh, or, or common grackle. So those, those call notes, um, really do help pick out kind of oddball blackbirds from the, the rest of the pack. Uh, here where I am, I'm always looking for yellow headed blackbird. I do still need that for the state. And, um, I've, I've found that it's the, also the best way to find, um, leukistic, Red wing blackbirds is to look into a flock of blackbirds and look for those white <laughs> spots. I found so many random red wing blackbirds with crazy white patches all over them, and uh, still have not yet found oh, a yellow headed blackbird. <laughs> I feel like rusties and brewer- brewers are so variable in terms of what calls during flying and what doesn't. Hmm. Um, at least here in Louisiana, because sometimes like you will have a completely silent flock, or maybe just one bird calls, or you'll have a group that's kind of coming down lower to the trees and is calling very frequently. Um, but I've definitely noticed like cowbirds will often be more silent than compared to something like red winged blackbirds. Marky, as an artist, when you are painting or illustrating any of these birds, do you notice those differences more acutely? Those kind of shape differences more acutely? 
definitely. There are also a lot of like little tiny things that I'll notice when um, drawing as well that maybe aren't as useful in right. the field, but are something that can be used as a, a backup mark if you got a good look or even a good photo. I've drawn both Rusty and Brewers and Red Wing Blackbirds. Um, and there's definite differences. Maybe like the crown is a little bit flatter in a Red Wing Blackbird. And a Rusty Blackbird has more of a rounded head. Brewers Blackbirds fall into almost more cowbird-like. Um, so it just depends. But yeah, normally when drawing, I note a lot, notice a lot of these differences. We're talking a lot about, uh, you know, flocks of birds moving. Tom, you mentioned earlier that waterfowl are moving quite a bit up in Cape May. I think that's a, that's a thing that a lot of people across the continent are seeing. Um, waterfowl, one of the first birds to move every single spring. So there's a lot of birds in the air, a lot of just birds out in odd places in general, a lot of weird looking ducks. When you're sort of approaching maybe a flock of distant ducks, what are the things that you're sort of thinking about as you go about trying to identify those birds? You know, this is something that I was thinking about as recently as just this morning here in Cape May. Um, this is the time of year when you can go out and on a lake or uh, in the marshes, you can look out and see maybe 10 or even 15 species of waterfowl all together. And when there are hundreds or even thousands of birds, it can be kind of overwhelming. So what I like to do when I arrive kind of on one of these vistas of waterfowl is to just just scan around and, and try to get an un- understanding of what, what the dynamic is. Maybe you've got a, a big flock of American black ducks or or there are hundreds of common mergansers or something like that. You kind of get a feel for what the, the dominant species are and then start out by, by washing your, your scope or your binoculars back and forth over the whole flock and just trying to see if, if anything really jumps out at you as, as being unusual or, or uh, you know, warranting further study. And then I usually, if, if I do that and I, I don't see anything that really jumps out as, um, as unusual, at that point I'll circle back and then do kind of a systematic scan of, of every individual I can see. And, uh, you know, fortunately we're not talking in most cases, I'm not talking about tens of thousands of ducks, but more in the couple hundred mm-hmm. to a thousand range. So, so looking one by one at, at individual birds is, is a manageable task <laughs> in those situations. And at that, at that point, this time of the year, you can go through things like flocks of green wing teal and try to tease out Eurasian teal or, or intergrade teal, or maybe a big flock of widgeons. You can try to look for rusty headed Eurasian widgeon in the, in the mix. So those, that's kind of my general strategy for approaching big flocks of waterfowl. Yeah, I'd say for the most part, um, that's how I go about a lot of our flocks. When we get several, like a few weeks back, I had 40,000 shoveler. And so looking through groups like that, it is a lot more difficult, like you were mentioning, to go one by one looking for (laughs) what I have to do when I go through these, because as much as I would love to look at every single bird, um, I just have to go back and forth over these groups multiple times, seeing if there is something that jumps out. Um, And usually I'll try and be like, okay, I'm going to actually count the ducks when I do this um, and see if I can get something more better than uh, just a general estimate. And in doing that, um, I usually pick out maybe, okay, there's deeper water over here. I can see some divers. So maybe I'll hang out on the spot a little bit longer because divers go underwater. Maybe I missed something the first time through or the second time or even the third time through. And so kind of understanding where in your flock different groups Mm. are 
can help you um, understand maybe other birds are hanging out with them. Marky, I had a question about that idea of, of birds jumping out um, when you're scanning through a flock. And I, I was just wondering, do you think that that is primarily based on your, your previous experiences with the common species? And so mm-hmm. when you see something that, that really doesn't fit your, your field, you know, your, um, your memory of common species, then you sort of draw more attention to it. I always am thinking about this when I go to places where I don't have a lot of experience with with the birds. And so I end up usually then starting out by looking at things one by one instead of this sort of more generalized holistic approach. Is that is that kind of how you think of that process? Yeah, definitely. I think it goes with a lot of groups like goals, something where you're scanning. I mean, like you're mentioning, it's I know a lot of these birds. I know the common species. Or maybe I'll, like the blackbirds, okay, this group is mostly blue-winged teal. And so I can kind of skip birds that maybe are very similar um, in size. And if they're close enough and good enough light, you can be like, okay, those are definitely blue-winged teal. But yeah, I I think it's definitely based on being um, familiar with the common species. That's why people who are seen as skilled birders seem to be better at at picking out quote unquote good birds. It's there's a certain there are certain assumptions that you make as a birder that you can feel pretty safe about making. And once you've made those, then you can kind of set things aside and then maybe lay a different level of looking, a different ty- type of looking on these things that um, define those sort of unusual, the little the wheat in the chaff. Definitely. I think about this a lot when I'm looking at flocks of gulls, like Marky was saying. And, you know, one of the things I really like doing in the the winter and the early spring is pulling up and seeing a big flock of hundreds or thousands of gulls. And, you know, I realize that I often end up just sort of looking around with my binoculars Mm -hmm. kind of on autopilot, just scanning through ring build, ring build, herring, herring, herring. And, not really, not really identifying individuals as much, but letting letting my my eyes um, sort of wash over the flock until I see something that that really jars me back into focus. It's almost like kind of like <laughs> Zen like gulling. But I I often wonder if if that lack of sort of specific attention is like a positive or a negative <laughs> factor in my birding. Like, am I missing some really, you know, unexpected rarities that way? Or is that just a kind of an enjoyable thing to do and let your let your mind wander while you're looking at big flocks of birds? Yeah. Not really sure. Yeah, I guess when it's something like a big flock, it can be kind of overwhelming to think, okay, I want to look at each bird individually. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if that is part of the reason why things like, I don't know, little egret, is found more often in the northern, like up in the Atlantic provinces and the northeast, as opposed to down here in the southeast, where birders are more mm-hmm. inclined to just kind of let their let their eyes wash over every snowy egret that they see, whereas a little egret could very easily be hiding in there. And whereas you've got birders in the north who don't see as many little egret or snowy egrets who are going to look very closely at every single white, you know, medium sized white heron that they that they find. You know, what are we missing? Are we missing elegant turns because we're not going through every single royal turn? Maybe. <laughs> I definitely, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. I definitely don't check every single snowy egret. <laughs> yeah, I think that relative scarcity of, you know, some carrier species, like I think of, you know, snowy egret as kind of being a carrier mm-hmm. species in, in the new world for little egret. 
And yeah, there's this uh, kind of spike in in records from the maritime provinces of Canada and in New England, where uh, where snowy egret is a bit scarcer than it is farther down the coast in the Mid Atlantic and in the Southeast. And you'd have to think that there are some little egrets that are that are using those areas, mm-hmm. um, you know, like like Florida, for example, uh, given how many little egrets there are in the West Indies moving around and, and actually breeding in places like Barbados. Yeah. Who's going to look through all the snow egrets in Florida? <laughs> I don't blame people for not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun. At least it was uh, really fun to talk birding with, with both of you. Uh, Marky Mutchler and Tom Johnson can be found on the interwebs at places that I will link to in the show notes. Um, thanks so much to both of you. This was, this was good. Yeah. Thank you. It was, it was really fun to, uh, to think through some of these things that I often, um, it's automatic for me. Yeah. It was great to hear your perspective on it, Marky. And, and thanks, Nate, for having me back. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Please consider joining the ABA. If you like what we do here, you'll get access to our print publications, discounts to partners, and our thanks as we build a better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and around the world. Get information about all our memberships, including e-memberships at aba.org slash join. I do want to make some shout outs this week. Brian Butinich from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Zachary Holmes from Palmetto, Florida. Robert and Catherine Wagnart from Bel Air, Maryland. Zachary Krogman from La Crosse, Wisconsin. Paul Rankin and the Rankins from Jackson, Mississippi. Michael Pawani from Aurora, Illinois. Joe Cuoco and the Cuoco family from Grafton, Vermont. Tom Gwynn from Newton, Massachusetts. Kimberly Hanau from Jersey Village, Texas. And Morgan and Martin Dravick Hampshire from Sandusky, Ohio, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason. Y'all are great. Thank you so much. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who is in the process of writing a strongly worded letter to the state of Iowa for calling their university mascot a Hawkeye when it is very clearly a falcon. Technical production is by John Lowry, who doesn't know what a hokey is, but pretty sure it's not a super buff wild turkey with webbed feet. So get it together, Virginia Tech. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who understand why the Eastern Washington Eagle mascot says E-W-U on it, but just want to note that if you turn it over, it says Emu, and that's entirely wrong for the bird they're portraying. But ironically, that bird does look more like a basketball player. You can find us online at ABA.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I'm not sure why the Liberty Flames and the North Texas Mean Green have eagles on their logos when they're not called eagles, but I am especially unsure why the Liberty Eagle looks like a cross-eyed parrot. Questions, comments, corrections could come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week. <laughs>